as I begin. Father God, I ask that you would um, open our, our eyes, open our hearts, and open our minds to your truth. Soften our hearts to the reality of the resurrection where there is uh, a sense of comfort and a sense of familiarity. Would you make it new for us? Help us to see again what your son suffered on our behalf. Where there is hard-heartedness or callousness, would you bring a soft heart? Um, where there is apathy, rekindle us. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So there you have it. In the ancient books of the Bible, you have a prediction, a prophecy written in Isaiah of the suffering of Jesus from hundreds of years before it happened. You have in Hebrews that was read uh, by Greg, you have this explanation of the meaning of the crucifixion, that Christ offers himself as a sacrifice according to uh, the temple practice once and for all. And then you have the great narrative. We, we read the full thing. Uh, and it's a dramatic, tragic story of the extermination of a human life by the Romans and the Jewish leaders. And it would be tempting to think that this was just a kind of a quaint religious myth. The resurrection, or excuse me, the cross of Christ is not a religious event, strictly speaking. Let me say that again. The cross is not a religious event, strictly speaking. I'll explain why. But the cross of Christ is cosmic and complete. It's cosmic and complete. We're going to talk about those two points. So first, Christ's crucifixion was not a religious event, at least not according to the world's definition. You see, a religious event in our world or a religious activity in our world is something that you could actually kind of anticipate, something that you can kind of expect or make sense in light of the needs of the people. So religious acts are always humans acting to try and fulfill or meet needs in their lives. Religious acts are a way of trying to get to the gods or to the divine to meet this sense of lack or this sense of longing. So, you know, going way back to make it really simple and primitive, let's say like I'm a farmer and I need rain for my crops. Well, what do I do? I know that's outside of my control, so I go and I try to make the rain god happy so that he'll give me rain, right? And I've got to figure out how to do that, and if it doesn't work and I don't get rain that year, I try something different the next year, and on and on and on, trying to appease the rain god through religious activity so that I can receive the thing that I need for my survival, to receive his blessing. So what's the problem with worldly religious acts like this? Well, there's a couple of problems. The first one is that some people actually don't even feel the same need that the other people feel. So the farmer feels this need for rain, but you might be a potter. You don't really care if it rains as much as the farmer. I mean, you might because you eat what the farmer grows, but your like, day-to-day thought process is not on the rain, right? You're, you're wondering about whether someone's going to come and get your stuff, if you get injured uh, through some tragic accident. Like Your concerns are different. So we don't all actually share the same kinds of needs, and so we may not actually all go after the same kinds of religious activities. So religion there is particular. A second uh, problem with this is that maybe we have the same need, but I found another solution to the problem that's not through the divine. So this is why you see religion being kind of pushed out in the modern age by technology and uh, industry and innovation. This is actually the new religion. 
So in, the, in, in times past, people have thought, well, my need is, is health or, or uh, if it's rain for my crops. Now we have irrigation. Now we have uh, all kinds of ways to deal with this. And hello, science and industry. I've got irrigation. I don't need God. A third problem is that even though people are seeking help from the divine in religious acts, it's still humans trying to reach the divine. It's still the finite trying to reach the infinite. And that's impossible. It's impossible. The finite cannot reach the infinite. No one can ever do that. And so the whole project from the beginning is doomed. And so religious acts kind of, they, they matter to these people, but what's good for you is good for me or isn't good for me, but that's okay. We can have different things. We have different needs. That's not what's happening at the cross. The cross is a cosmic event that speaks to all people in all places at all times. See, on the contrary, if the one who made everything and knows everything himself comes down and actually tells us about himself, that then changes everything. There's no more guesswork, right? There's no more guesswork. So the cross of Christ is actually the pinnacle, the height of God's speech to the world, saying, I love you, this is what I'm like, this is your problem, this is the fundamental issue, and this is the solution. See, when, when Christ died, it wasn't just for a small group of religious people over there. The whole earth shook. The heavens were altered. Human history was changed. The cross was a cosmic event. When Christ died, God spoke to all people in every place and in every sort of situation. And what did he say? What did he say when he spoke to all people? He said, your fundamental problem is not actually any of the struggles and pains of this world that cause you trouble. Your fundamental problem is that you are opposed to God. Your fundamental problem is that you are opposed to the one true God. And God's answer to that problem is not to leave us in guesswork, but it's actually to himself reach down and to make it right. His answer to the problem of human opposition and sin is to uh, is not fundamentally to give us religious activities to perform, to try and make him happy. It's actually to pay the price himself, to conquer sin, to conquer death through the cross of Christ and to provide full deliverance out of that which binds us. So then, because he loves us, he brings us to himself, which is the solution. The greatest answer to our greatest problem is God himself. The greatest solution is God himself. When you find salvation, you get God. And that's the ultimate prize. That's the reward. The cross of Christ declares to all people that we have this need for God, and all people need this solution of the cross. The claim here at the cross is not that just some people might have a problem that Jesus might be helpful with, and you might want to put them in your back pocket while you go on your, your career, or you go on your shopping spree, or while you scroll on your iPhone, or whatever. No, Jesus declares boldly with his body nailed to the cross that we all have this fundamental problem of sin and opposition to God. We all have this problem of death and corruption in us. And he alone has overcome and paid the price to re rescue us out of it. This means that each one of us must respond. There is no indifference to the cross. 
if it is a cosmic event. There's only faith or rejection. So what will you do with the crucified Christ? How will you respond to him? So in addition to the cross being cosmic, that second point there is that it's complete. This is what's beautiful about the cross of Christ. There's no longer, uh, there no longer exists any need for any other solution or any kind of act by God to over- overcome all that afflicts us. You might think, well, what about when Jesus comes again and makes all things new? That's true. We know that one day God will return, that Christ will return, that he'll make all things new. But he's actually in that final act completing what he started at the cross, what he's already paid for. He's not actually going to pay for or conquer again. He's going to come and, and finish what he started, what he already paid for with his life. It's the act of Christ to overcome all things and to make all things new in this act on the cross. He said it was necessary that he must suffer, and it was through death and through the cross that he was to go on his way to full victory. He had to be made like us in every way. Hebrews 2 said this so that he might provide full deliverance. See, he took on and absorbed everything that ails us as humans and took it into himself. Everything that happens, he took it into, he took it into himself and instead of being overcome by it and kept down because he's God, he filled the grave with life and actually triumphed over it. And so the cross became his trophy. The cross is our means of redemption and victory. And nothing is left outside of its healing power. The tree that he was nailed to became a tree of life. It's this great reversal. How do we know that's true? Well, in our Hebrews reading, we, we, we heard about how the priests, they stand there and they offer sacrifices all the time and they're constantly being reminded of sin because of these sacrifices, aren't they? And you go into the temple. If you go back into chapter 9, actually, at the beginning of that chapter, it gives us a nice... Um, uh, rundown of the interior decor of the temple. Man, they've got, they've got beautiful tapestries. They've got a bunch of colors. They've got gold-plated uh, um, uh, vessels that go on the table. They've got all kinds of tables and wash bins. They've got furniture galore. They've got a place for God, the mercy seat, right? But you know what they're missing? They're missing something that I personally, if I were there at the time, would have appreciated. There is, there is something to me just staring us in the face. There's actually nowhere for the priest to sit down and take a rest. The priests are working all the time, day in, day out, sacrifice, sacrifice, all the time, working. There's nowhere for them to sit down in the temple. Why? Because there's always work to do. There's always sin to be atoned for. There's always something to make right with God. But look what Jesus does. It was not until Christ offered himself and entered the perfect temple of heaven that the carpenter from Nazareth built the first priest chair and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And by the way, he makes double use of it as a throne. This is why every week we declare that Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed once for all upon the cross. Therefore, let us keep the feast. We remember the once-for-all sacrifice, and it is done. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. So we see that Christ's death is cosmic. We see it's universal. It applies to everybody. It declares that everyone is under the same uh, conundrum of separation and opposition to God and that everyone requires the same solution, which is the death of Christ. And we see that the cross is complete. It's sufficient to bring us back to God. The sacrifices are done being offered. The, 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 The curtain has been torn and the way into God is now open. It's complete. It's done forever. 
So, what do we do with it? Can God heal and overcome your shame? Well, Christ there, he was mocked and he was displayed for public shame on our behalf. Can God overcome and heal your guilt? The Bible says that Christ there gave himself as a sacrifice to pay for sin and to cancel the record of debt against us. Can God overcome the power of sin that holds you captive? It says in the Bible that Christ there became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. You might ask, can God overcome and destroy the power of ungodly, earthly leaders? Same kind that he faced in his day? Christ there disarmed the rulers and authorities, Scripture says, and put them to open shame. Can Christ overcome and defeat that ancient adversary, Satan? That liar, that accuser? In Hebrews 2, it says Christ there delivered, or that Christ there destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. Can Christ deliver you from the curse of sin and the law, from the fear of death? Christ there delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ there became a curse on our behalf that we might receive the promised blessing. What can Christ do that he hasn't done already through the cross? What pain, what struggle, what need, what anxiety, what fear, what bondage, what power can he overcome that he has not already overcome on the cross? The answer is none. And even if we don't see that full deliverance now, and sometimes we don't, the promise is that it's coming and that he's already accomplished it and that it's paid for. So if Christ finished his work and sat down to rest to overcome all these things that afflict you, why are we still striving? Why are we still holding on to things that he paid for us to let go of? Things that torment us and afflict us. This evening, you and I have a chance to respond to the cross. What do you need to lay down at the cross? What do you need to give over to Jesus that he's paid to take away from you? What bondage, what fear, what affliction, what sin? What has Christ overcome that you haven't given to him yet? I would encourage you to listen carefully to him and when the time comes tonight for us to write down those things, write it down and nail it to the cross and give it to him. Do that for your own good and for the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.